called a Thanksgiving divorce. A man in Phoenix calls his son in New York the day before Thanksgiving and says, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. 45 years of misery is enough. Pop, what are you... You guys are laughing already? That's not funny. <laughs> Got to wait for the punchline. That's not funny. Pop, what are you talking about? The son screams. We can't stand the sight of each other any longer, the father says. We're sick of each other, and I'm sick of talking about this. So call your sister in Chicago and tell her. Frantic, the son calls his sister, who explodes on the phone. Like heck, they're getting divorced. She shouts, I'll take care of this. She calls Phoenix immediately and screams at her father. You're not getting divorced. Don't do a single thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother back and we'll be there tomorrow. Until then, don't do a thing. Do you hear me? And hangs up. The old man hangs up the phone and turns to his wife. Okay, he says, they're coming for Thanksgiving and paying their own way. Second Corinthians chapter five. If you need a Bible, we do have some uh, Bibles back there. Mike's got a couple in his hand. If you're in need of one of those. Second Corinthians chapter five. Paul is writing this letter, second Corinthians, to give a rebuttal to those in Corinth who, after he departed, began to criticize him. They began to question his motives. They began to question his methods. They began to question his authority. And Paul, you remember, had spent 18 months in Corinth, the second longest tenure of any of the churches that he had visited and planted. Of course, he spent about two and a half years in Ephesus. But here in Corinth, he spent 18 months, a considerable amount of time with these people, ministering to them planning a church among them, evangelizing the lost. He even worked on the side while he was there, making tents. He wouldn't even take money from them. He refused to take money from them. And they even used this as a means to criticize him, saying, well, the only reason Paul didn't take money is because he thinks he's too good to take your money. That's the kind of treatment that Paul was getting there in Corinth. And of course, he's gone now and and he sent, um, you know, Titus there to to try to clean it up. And Paul had heard about all the mess that was there. And he wrote them a letter, uh, which was 1 Corinthians, to try to straighten up the mess in the church. And, And now some time has gone by and now there's division in the church. Now the church hates Paul and they hate the way he did things. And there's these false teachers that are trying to rip the church away from Paul's authority. And we know from 1 Corinthians that the church of Corinth was a church with many gifts. The lack of gifts in this church was not the problem. In fact, and this might be wrong to say, but they may have had too many gifts. So many gifts, they were stumbling all over each other. The problem was not the gifts. The problem was not giftedness. The problem was how they were using these gifts. They were using these gifts to puff each other up. They were using them in selfish ways instead of ministering them to one another. Instead of being a blessing to one another, they were actually using them to promote themselves. There was an abundance of gifts in this church, but there was a lack of real ministry taking place. And 2 Corinthians has been for us a handbook or a manual, if you will, on real ministry. In fact, over the last five weeks, in chapters 4 and 5, we've been discussing real ministry. If you haven't been here, if you've missed some of those studies, I really encourage you, um, if this is your church and you call this your church home, I I encourage you to get those CDs on chapters 4 and 5, where... I've just really shared my heart. I've shared some things that God's doing in my life and in this church. And these chapters have changed the way that I do ministry. They have changed the focus of this church. And and I really encourage you uh, to pick those up if you get a chance. But Paul has been discussing real ministry. 
what it looks like, what it is, what it will accomplish when it happens, the hardships and difficulties, because they will come in real ministry. When you're really doing ministry, when your life, as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 15, is for the sake of others, when you're doing that, just like Paul experienced, you're going to have difficulties. You're going to have hardships. And we need to count the cost. Because so often, people get into ministry, then they see how hard it is and they quit. How many pastors have went to Bible college, have went to seminary, and then launched out into ministry to only find that it was a lot harder than they thought and they quit? How many people sign up to teach Sunday school and then realize it was difficult and they quit or whatever in ministry, people get burned out. And that's another thing that we've been seeing in these chapters is how to keep going in ministry. Because that's just as important as the motive for launching into ministry is how to keep going in ministry. Because getting burned out halfway through might be worse than never starting. You know, you damage people, you hurt people. You let people down. You misrepresent God. And so we need to really, in a sense, learn from the Apostle Paul how he kept going in ministry. And we've seen that very clearly in these studies. And this morning I want to finish up chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 16 through 21 this morning. And the theme of this morning's message really is change. The, The word reconcile and reconciliation is used often in this text. And I want us to notice three things. First of all, our perspective in Christ, then our position in Christ, and then we're going to see our purpose in Christ. So first, our perspective in Christ. Verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus No longer. Paul has been talking about living your life for Jesus, being sold out to Jesus. He's been talking about that once you come to know Christ personally, then you want to give your life for the sake of others. Then, as he says there in verse 15, the previous verse, that he died for all, that those who live, that is us as believers, should live no longer for themselves. That's what the context is. Not living for yourself anymore. Living for Christ. Living for others. Therefore, as a result of that, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. And we don't regard Christ according to the flesh, Paul says. When you live for Jesus, when you're on fire for Jesus, when Jesus has captured your heart, and you know if He has or not, See, our hearts are captured by something. All of us here this morning have our hearts captured by something. You have a passion. And if your passion is Jesus, which that's what it should be. If your passion is Jesus, if He's captured your heart, then He changes the way you look at things. Your perspective changes. You're given a new perspective. This is our perspective in Christ. A new view. A new view of Christ, as he says here. We don't regard Christ according to the flesh. You're given a new view of Jesus. As a kid, I went to uh, Sunday school on, on the bus. You know, it was a big thing back in the 70s and 80s to pick kids up on the bus and take them to church and then bring them home. That was a big ministry, the school bus ministry. So my parents were more than happy to, you know, get rid of me for a couple hours, put me on the bus, send me off to Temple Baptist, And I learned about things that I had no comprehension of and that, you know, my parents didn't believe at that time. And there was no connection at home. So I would just learn and, you know, these things just sort of were like a fairy tale to me. And I remember as I got older that I remembered the stories. I remember the Sunday school teacher putting up the picture of Jesus on the cross and blood. And, you know, I just thought, man, I don't know what that's all about. And I remember, you know, that he rose from the dead and. I just remember thinking it was like any other story that you read as a kid. You know, once upon a time in a land far, far away. That was Jesus to me. It was a fairy tale. It was a good story. But it didn't really happen. 
And it certainly doesn't affect me. Okay, a guy died 2,000 years ago. Even if it did happen, big deal. What's the bearing on my life? But at 15, I came to know Jesus personally. He changed my life in a radical way in a very short amount of time. There wasn't, you know, this process. There wasn't somehow, um, you know, where five years later I really realized what I did. No, immediately there was change in my life. It happened instantaneously. And it, it changed the way I looked at things. Certainly it changed the way I looked at Jesus. No longer was He a fairy tale to me. No longer was He, you know... Um, flannel graph up on a board in some Sunday school room or a story, no longer was he a religion. He wasn't one of many ways. He was the only way. And it radically changed my life. Jesus, when he comes into your life, will give you a new perspective. He'll give you a new perspective about him. He'll give you a new perspective about people. All of a sudden, people are really and not to oversimplify things, but people are really all of a sudden to you broken into two categories. They're either your brothers and sisters in Christ or they're your mission field. That's it. There's two types of people to you. They're either your bros and your sisters in Christ or they're your mission field. You don't have enemies. We only have one enemy and that's the devil. And anything that you're bitter about, anything that you hate your neighbor about, anything that bugs you about people, it really, you guys, is, and we have to have this perspective, it's God using that person to make us more like Him. And secondly, they're attacks of the enemy. And so, that's the perspective that we begin to have about people. We don't hold on to those things anymore. We can't stay mad at people. We can't hate people we all of a sudden begin to have a desire to minister to people, to bless people. All of a sudden, our our heart is no longer to serve ourselves and to, to make our life better, but our heart is that all things are for your sakes. Chapter 4, verse 15. It's a new view of people. You get a new view on life. A new focus, a new outlook. Your trials are seen differently when you have Christ. They're seen as an opportunity rather than a a bummer. Your money takes on a different meaning. All of a sudden, your pursuit of money, if if you're a a businessman, your, your pursuit of money is so that you can give it away, so that you can bless somebody else. So that you can give toward missions and to the church and to things of the kingdom. It's a different perspective. I mean, you try to communicate that to somebody that doesn't know Jesus, and you might as well be speaking a foreign language. Our careers take on a new meaning. We no longer regard people according to the flesh. And you guys, we have to really be challenged with this because I think that that we do regard people according to the flesh often. We we regard people with their position in the world, with their financial situation. It's natural to the flesh, but we, we judge and we assess people according to their place monetarily. And if people have a lot of money, then all of a sudden we find ourselves being really nice to that person. And all of a sudden we find ourselves overlooking things in them that we don't overlook in other people. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. The guy's loaded. You know? That's, I can, I can overlook that. I, I, I can, you know, go out of my way to, to bless them and to serve them and to honor them and, We take on kind of this reverent attitude toward people with money. But then we find ourselves treating people that don't have a lot of money differently. We don't respect them the same. We don't take time out of our busy schedules for them the same. We don't overlook things in them 
we hold things against them. We're more willing to hurt them. That's regarding people according to the flesh. Jesus never regarded people according to the flesh. He treated everyone equally. And in fact, Jesus treated lepers and prostitutes and tax collectors and those that were despised among them. He treated them better than he did those that had the elite status of the day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Jesus often offended them. They were the ones that could help him. They were the ones that could propel him in his ministry. Or at least that would be the fleshly fleshly way to look at it, right? But Jesus didn't look at it that way. He knew that he was there to honor God. And one of the ways that we honor God, one of the ways that we please God, is by ministering to people who can give you nothing in return. Who have nothing to offer you. Because you're not regarding them according to the flesh. You're regarding them according to the way God sees them. I think if I were Paul and I was running into the problems that Paul was running into in Corinth, I would have just written them off. I would have been like, you know what? Why do I even care about Corinth? I'm from Jerusalem. I don't have to ever come to your stupid city again. You don't want me there? You're going to talk bad about me? For all I care, that church of yours can close the doors. Crazy charismatics over there in Corinth. I don't even care about you anyway. That could have very easily been Paul's heart. I don't think anybody would have blamed him. The character assassinations that were coming against him. No one would have blamed Paul. But Paul had the heart of God. He had Jesus' heart. And he said, you know what, I know you guys really have nothing to offer me. I know that I really am not benefiting myself at all by making such efforts to come to you and to minister to you and to set things right. But I'm not regarding you according to the flesh. I have a new perspective. Guys, what's our perspective? We need to begin to see things through the lens of the Word of God. We need to begin to see things through the lens of of God's Holy Spirit. It's a new perspective. Not regarding things according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Hopefully He's given you a new view. And maybe of late, your perspective has been real worldly. Your perspective has been real fleshly. You've been looking at things through the eyes of the world. And this morning, God is challenging us. He's saying, I want you to to see things differently. I want you to have my perspective on things. You guys, new perspective will change your life. Think about the way that that we watch football now. You know, back in the old days, you know, there was like one camera, you know. And it was like, if the game wasn't going on right in front of you, then forget it. Right in front of that camera, forget it. But now there's... Cameras on ropes, you know, swinging around. And there's can't, there's like 45 cameramen down on the field and all these different perspectives. And if the ball's fumbled and back in the day it was like, was it really a fumble? I don't know if it was a fumble. I can't tell if his knee was down or not. Now there's no question. It's like, yep, it was a fumble. Or nope, it wasn't a fumble. Now you get to be a ref. You get to yell at the refs more because you have more knowledge. Better perspective. God wants to give us that kind of perspective comes through His Word. When we're not in His Word, you guys, we have a really terrible perspective about things. We have a really terrible view of things. Terrible view of Christ. Terrible view of people. A terrible view of life. God wants to give you a new perspective. Don't regard things according to the flesh. But see them through His eyes. It's an amazing thing. To see things through God's eyes. He's given us that opportunity. Let's talk about our position in Christ. We've seen our perspective in Christ. Our position in Christ. Verses 17 and then we're going to look at verse 21 as well. Some great verses. Some familiar verses. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 21. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, those of you that come here a lot, you know that verse 21 is my favorite verse in the Bible. I quote it often. It's, I think, one of the most radical things that I've ever read. Well, let's talk about our position in Christ. What is our position in Christ? Well, Paul tells us in verse 17 that we are a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's the key, is that you're in Christ. Paul develops this thought in Ephesians chapter 1 in a radical way, telling us that if we're in Christ, there's major blessings as a result. In fact, he says if you're in Christ, then you've been blessed with all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You may not have a lot financially. You may be broke monetarily. But the Bible tells you that you have all the riches of the kingdom at your disposal. That we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's an amazing thing. And that is our position. We're in Christ. And as a result, we are a new creation. David, after a year of living with the guilt of his sin, after having an affair, an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, then covering it up by killing her husband Uriah, for a year he he buried it. And then Nathan the prophet exposed his sin, and David wrote Psalm 51. And David said, Lord, create within me a clean heart. And that word clean is very similar to this word new. It means not a remodel. It means not something that's refurbished. It means something entirely new. You can do two things with a building. Buy a piece of property that has a house on it. You can tear it down and build a new one. Or you can remodel the old one. And God could have remodeled us, but He chose to re build us completely. Give us a new life. We're new creations in Christ. And you know, I look at my life and my position in Christ and I often think, man, I, I know I'm a new creation. That's what the Bible tells me. And I know that the old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. But I see a lot of the old Ryan. You know, if If he retired, he's making a lot of reappearances. You know, kind of like Michael Jordan. You know, he's retired 14 times, you know. Keeps making reappearances. Just ask my wife. I mean, she hates the old Ryan worse than I do. I think all of us look at our lives and we think, man, I see a lot of the old Jack or the old Susie. It's a lot of that popping up. And what's what's the deal? The deal is, is that you're not understanding who you are in Christ at that time. So you're not understanding that you've been given holiness. You've been given righteousness. And I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Because we have a new position in Christ. That is that we're a new creation. And we see what brought this position about. In verse 21, it came about because he who knew no sin was made to be sin with our sin. You guys, Jesus is the one that brings this change. Jesus is the one that brings about this new position. And it comes about through the cross. Here we're told that all of the sin of the world was put on Christ. That's why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was so filled with anguish. That's why He was sweating great drops of blood. Not because He was afraid of the physical pain. He was afraid of taking on the sin of the world. He was in anguish over the fact that He and God the Father would be separated for that time as God poured out His wrath on Jesus as He became sin for us. See, position is pretty important in this world. Talk about our position at work, 
We talk about our position, maybe in the military. You know, what rank are you? Talk about your position in sports. What position do you play? What position are you on the sales chart? Position's important. What position are you in terms of getting that promotion? Well, this person's probably got a better chance of getting it than I do. Position's important, right? We talk about the fact that Jesus took on the sin of the world. We've got to understand the position that Jesus had. He was God of all heaven and earth. And He stepped out of heaven. And that would be amazing in and of itself. It would be amazing in and of itself just if He did that. But the Bible says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, that Jesus emptied Himself of all His divine privileges. It doesn't say that He ceased to be God. That's impossible. That's heresy. But it does tell us that Jesus ceased to experience, ceased to enjoy the privileges of His position as God. That's a really amazing thing. Think about a CEO of a company. How often is the CEO, even for a day, even for an hour, going to take on the position of the janitor? You know, I think today I'm going to set aside all my privileges of being the CEO and I'm going to be the janitor today. It doesn't happen very often. And it probably shouldn't happen. company probably wouldn't do well. But if we think about it in those terms, I mean, we think about giving up our privileges even for a day or a week or even a few hours. Yesterday, a bunch of people got together and, and raked leaves. We went different neighborhoods and it's great to see people out just wanting to serve Jesus and bless people. And we just rake their leaves and people would come out and we'd tell them about Jesus and it's a great thing. But in the morning when I got up, I was thinking, you know, man, I really don't want to go rake leaves this morning. There's got to be something else I need to do. i got to study, you know. We don't want to give up our privileges even for a few hours, let alone for 33 years Jesus set aside His divine privileges. And then He took up a cross that you and I should have taken. And He took on our sin. The sin of mankind was put upon Jesus as it tells us there in verse 21. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. This is not a good trade. We play fantasy football here at church, a bunch of guys. and You know, sometimes guys will just mess around and they'll they'll offer, you know, like some crummy player for your best player. You know, or a kicker. You know, kickers are like a dime a dozen. They'll offer you a kicker for one of the best running backs. It's just a joke, you know, and you hope the guy does it, but you know he never will. It's, it's kind of something fun to do. It's, a, it's not a fair trade. Are you joking? Remember in elementary school, I was super into baseball cards. And I had a ton of baseball cards. And you love the kids that really didn't, like baseball that much, and they didn't know anything about it. You know, like they didn't know who was good and who wasn't. They they didn't know a history of the game, and but they were rich, and their parents like bought them everything. So they'd come to school, all their baseball cards, and you're like, I'll trade you, um, you know, Nolan Ryan rookie for Joe Smith. All right, is Joe Smith good? Oh, this guy, this card, man, is going to be worth a lot. Yeah. And I remember my sixth grade teacher, big old Polish guy, forget his name, it was something ski, but just a big old guy. He was a nice guy, but he, he, he would take advantage of kids. He loved baseball cards. And he'd be like, uh, hey, Ryan, you want to stay after class and trade some cards? I don't know, man. You like ripped me off last time, you know. You're way too smart. You're... You're like 40 or whatever, and I'm 8, and this isn't real fair. Your intelligence is... But bad trades. That's a bad trade. Jesus taking 
our sin and giving us, as it says here, His righteousness. And I started off kind of this whole thing talking about, you know, maybe you don't see yourself as living in the new life real often. You see a lot of the old Ryan. Your spouse sees a lot of that. And they don't like him or her. And you don't like him or her, but he seems to make appearances often. He's like the neighbor that comes over every day that you don't like, you know. Hey, man, what's going on? Oh, got a game on? That's kind of the old man. He's just there and you're like, oh, man, would you please leave? And the thing is, you guys, is that we have a choice on a daily basis to die to that old man or to let him survive, let him thrive in our life. And the way in which he will thrive and survive or die is really based on how we see ourselves. If you see yourself as trying to work up righteousness, trying to attain to holiness, then it will be very difficult, impossible. We're not working from a place or working toward a place of holiness. You guys, we're working from a place of holiness. And we need to understand that. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He took our sin. We're now a new creation. We've now been given His righteousness. And this is amazing. Because He doesn't say in verse 21 that He made you as righteous as the most righteous man you can think of. Some really cool guy, maybe the person that led you to the Lord, maybe the person that discipled you, you know, not your pastor, he wouldn't even think of that. But, you know, somebody that, other than me who's really righteous. You know what? I, you're supposed to laugh at this point. Thank you. Somebody really righteous, you think, man, if I could only attain that level of righteousness, but Jesus doesn't even say that He's given you that kind of righteousness. He says, I've given you my righteousness. You're as holy as I am. I've clothed you in my righteousness. Think about it in these terms. We probably all have like real, one really nice set of you know, clothes, maybe a suit or really nice dress or whatever, and you only wear it to certain occasions. You know, if, if you haven't bought that in like 30 years, it's probably time to upgrade, you know, upgrade that suit. You know, if if you if you need like channel locks to button the the button on your suit, it's, it's probably time to get a new one. And, or if it's, you know, like. I don't even need to describe the suit. You just know if it needs an upgrade. But we all have like one set of clothes at least that's really nice and we wouldn't think about going out and doing yard work in it. You know, I think I'm going to go pull some weeds. I'm going to I'm going to go, you know, dig that ditch out in the front yard. I'm going to go feed the horses, slop the pigs. I, I think I'm going to put on that suit to do that. You know, get all dressed up, put on some cologne, comb your hair, you know, go out with the pigs. It's probably not what you do. You wouldn't even think about it. It's repulsive to even think of that. Down on your hands and knees in your nicest dress, you know, pulling weeds. You guys, that's the kind of mindset that we need to have as we approach life. Because life is like that. There's a lot of mud. There's a lot of crud out there in this life. And Jesus wants you to see that you're clothed in His righteousness. That you're wearing His robes of holiness. And so you walk by that pig pen and it's like, you know, I don't think I'm going to get in there because Jesus' righteousness is too good for that. I don't want to get all that slop and mud and crud on this. Not that I'm too good for that, because in fact, I'm a lot like that pig. But I've been given a new nature. And not that I'm too good, but Jesus' righteousness is too good. And I'm wearing it. I'm clothed in it. I'm a new creation in Christ. And you guys, if you're struggling with the mud and the crud of this world, if there's a lot of reappearances of your old man, it's because you're not seeing yourself clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
You don't understand your position in Christ. And if we begin to to understand that we're a new creation, that behold, all things have become new. The old has passed away. Think about that. All things have become new. Have you been married for any length of time? You know, 10, 20, 30 plus years. Your wedding gifts are either in the dump somewhere or they're starting to wear out. Starting to get old. You know, Andrew and I have already been through like three blenders. Just a word for you, just a little hint. Don't buy a cheap blender. You know, Walmart doesn't have any good ones. Got to get a good one. Got to find a good one. Stainless steel, sturdy. Otherwise, it's just a waste of time. You might as well use a hammer. They just don't work. They break. They bog down. You know, you put like one ice cube in there and a banana and they're, you know. Get a good blender. But your, your stuff's getting old. Stuff that you got for your wedding, stuff you bought, you know, early on, the couch, you know. It's like you might as well sit on the floor because that's basically where you end up when you sit on your couch. TV, you know, 25-inch Magnavox from 1987. It's like, you know, kind of going in and out. I got a friend. I go over to his house. He's got he's got a big screen in his living room, but he's got another TV out in in like the, the kind of dining room area and we're watching sports and then it'll just go out. And then like, he's like, oh, no, don't worry. It'll come back on like 30 seconds. And then sure enough, there it comes on again. You know, he's like, I know I need to get a new one. You know, it's like, yeah, if that is like the last shot, you know, in the fourth quarter, trailblazers, you know, not that they would make it, but they, they, they go to shoot. They're too busy, like raping women and shooting each other. Over there, but um, our position in Christ—it's—it's it's all the old is is gone. Everything has become new, and so like all that stuff that's starting to wear out in your house. What if somebody was to come to you and say, "You know, just write me a list of everything you want. I'll upgrade everything." The old toaster oven, you know, it's got mold in it. I'll, I'll buy the best, the newest. Take out that, that crummy stove and I'll get you a stainless steel. I'll get you one of those, you know, fridges with the freezer on the bottom, stainless steel, you know, like 4,000 square feet of storage space. So big, you got to keep it outside, you know. Take that old linoleum out. We'll put tile in. We'll take the four mic off the counters. We'll put in uh, granite. You think, hey, this is quite a deal. I'll, I'll, I'll give you... You give me that uh, 83 Honda Accord out there and I'll, I'll give you a Hummer. Just trade it straight across. And those of us that are in Christ, we know what that's like. We've been given new life. We've been given a major upgrade, if you will. All has become new. The old has passed away. But some people, and, and maybe one of you, maybe some of you are, are one of them, like, you know, I don't really want to trade in the, the 83 Honda with 400,000 miles on it. I bought that brand new. I bought it in 1983, and, and I've been paying payments on it. I paid payments on it for five years, in fact, until 1988, and I paid it off. And I don't ever need a new car, and I don't want a new car, because I want to have bought it myself. I take pride in the fact that I paid for this thing. That's what a lot of people do. It's like, nope, Jesus, I don't want your righteousness because I didn't earn it. I didn't buy it myself. I'd rather drive around in the 83 Honda because at least I can say it's mine and I earned it. And it may not be much. And if that's your mindset, just think how ridiculous that is. God wants to give you new life. He wants to take all the old and He wants to give you new. That's the position that we have in Christ. And if you're not in Christ this morning, I would encourage you to give your life to Christ. Let's look at the third thing, our purpose in Christ, verses 18 through 20. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ 
reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Our purpose in Christ. We see here that We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And to reconcile, it means to affect change, to bring change, to change thoroughly. It refers to a changed relationship between God and man. Because you see, if we're not in Christ, you guys, if we haven't been given new life in Christ, then we are enemies of God. The Bible tells us that. We're enemies of God. It's not like it's a casual kind of, well, you know, I kind of know God, but I kind of don't. You know, we're, we're kind of buddies. We got our own thing going. No, you either know Jesus or you're his enemy. Those are the terms that we need to be thinking about. Because you see, Jesus took the wrath of God. But if you haven't received Jesus, then the wrath of God is now going to be poured out upon you. You're subject to that. And we've been given, we're told here, the ministry of change. We've been given the ministry of bringing peace with God. That's what reconciliation means, to bring peace with God, to change. And our purpose, you guys, as believers, our purpose, those of us who have been given a new perspective, those of us who have been given a new position in Christ. What's our purpose? What's our purpose in Christ? Well, to boil it down, it's to give away what we've been given. It's to give away what we've been given. And I want us to see three things about our purpose in Christ. In these verses. First of all, in verse 18, it's a gift. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. It's not something that you earned. You didn't have to go through a course or a class or some program and get a diploma that says, now you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. No, the moment that you received Christ, the moment that you became in Christ, you were given the ministry of reconciliation. You may not be able to define it. You may not be able to describe it. But it's yours. You have it. We're called to give away that which we've been given. And not only is it a gift, it's not earned. But it's also been entrusted to us. Look at verse 19. The end of verse 19, it says, And has committed to us, the word of reconciliation. There's a difference between giving somebody a gift and then entrusting someone with something. You know, you give somebody a gift like a package of socks. You're not entrusting those socks to them. You're not saying, hey, you better take good care of these socks. You probably never ask them about the socks again. You don't really care about the socks. So you couldn't think of anything else to buy the person, so you bought them a package of socks. You're not entrusting anything to them. But think about this. If there's a family heirloom, something that means a lot to you, maybe your husband passes away or maybe someone very special in the family passes away and, and you take something of theirs that was very important and you give that to your son or your daughter and you're entrusting them with that. Committing that to their care. You know, but if like six months later, your mom, after your dad dies, says, hey, you still have dad's pocket knife? Oh, I don't know what I did with that, mom. I, to be honest with you, I think I pawned it. You know, that would be offensive. They're entrusting that to your care. They're committing that to you. And that's what God has done to us. He's entrusted us with the message, with the ministry. Of reconciliation. So it's not just a gift. It's not just something you didn't earn, but it's also something that you need to cherish. 
that you need to take good care of. It's committed to you. In other words, share it. Minister it to one another. The last thing that we see about our purpose in Christ is that it's a representation of Him. Look at verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ. We're His ambassadors. What is an ambassador? I think we all know. It's somebody sent from a country to represent that country. We send out ambassadors for the United States all over the world. And they're expected, it's assumed, that they're going to represent the United States. Because we represent Jesus. Now that's a scary thought on a number of different levels. But I don't want to put some kind of heavy burden on us because I don't think the Bible does. I don't think Jesus does. You guys, the very moment we get out of bed in the morning, we've already misrepresented God. We've already misrepresented Jesus. You breathe in and breathe out, and it's like you've misrepresented God. God chose to use the foolish things of this world to be His ambassadors. be like the United States sending Carrot Top to Japan to represent the U.S., right? be like, who in the world is this guy? Is this the United... And most of the... Probably a lot of the world wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that's, that's a lot like Americans there. Yeah. But that's a lot like what Jesus has done for us. He said, look, I'm gifting to you the ministry of reconciliation. I'm entrusting it to you. And you're my ambassador. I'm your ambassador? I feel a lot like Carrot Top. It's a foolish thing of this world. I'm going to represent God. Because we won't represent Him well unless we're sharing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we represent God. Your life is often going to be a misrepresentation. Now, I'm not giving you a carte blanche check to go do whatever you want. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying as people, we misrepresent God. We're not good ambassadors. But here's a good way we can be. That's to tell people about Jesus. That's to share the message that's been entrusted to us. And God smiles at that. God says, I'm pleased with that. That's what I need in an ambassador. I mean, Lord, couldn't you have done a lot better than than me? Yeah, I could have. There's a number of different things I could have done that would have been a much better representation of me, but I chose to use you. And we might even question God's logic on that. But God set it up that way. It's not the best marketing plan, but you know what? Jesus was never into marketing Himself. If he was into marketing Himself, He should have went about things a lot differently. That's our God. He does things backwards. We've got to get used to it. And He's chosen you. He's chosen me to be His ambassadors. To be the ones to bring the message of hope and forgiveness and the love of God to a lost world. What are we doing with it? What are we doing with those things that God has given us? You guys, if you have air in your lungs, which by looking out here, I don't see any of us dead yet. If you have air in your lungs, if you are living and breathing, you have a purpose. God has something for you. God wants to use you. Because my thought is, once my job on this earth is done, once I've completed what Jesus has for me, whether that be at 31 or at 81, I want to go home. I don't want to be here any longer than I have to be. Is that our perspective? It probably isn't if you're pursuing the things of this world because you've got a lot of other stuff you want to accomplish. You've got a lot of things you want to set up for yourself. But if your goal, if your purpose, if your passion is Jesus and He's captured your heart and you simply want to tell people about Him, then when your work is done, then you're ready to go home. It's like, hey, I'm done. 
You don't see contractors, once they've completed the house, hanging around. Hey, how you doing? Do you like this house? Did you see what I did with the tile work here? Just, you know, hanging out there for like ten years. Well, the job's done. They're out of there. Gone. I don't want to hang around. they got other things to do. That's not their home. Guys, this life is not our home. And when your work is done, you should want to go home. But if you've got air in your lungs, then you've got something left to do. The house isn't quite completed yet. Daily living for Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. and I think that these things are challenging. I think that, that any one of these points, our perspective in Christ, our, our position in Christ, our purpose in Christ, I think that, that you've probably been challenged at least by one or, or maybe all of these points this morning. And I want to give you guys an opportunity to just make these things a part of your life. Because you guys, it won't do us any good to just hear the Word and not do it. I want you to commit to the Lord. That area in which He's challenged you this morning. That thing that, that He's convicted you about. That area that you know you're failing and not doing well in. Maybe it's your perspective. Maybe you're seeing things through the eyes of this world. Maybe it's your position. Maybe you haven't been living as if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's a lot of reappearances of the flesh. Maybe it's your purpose. Maybe your purpose has been something other than the ministry of reconciliation. You're living for something other than what God has for you. God wants to use us, you guys. And I pray that as we sing this song, we just commit our lives to Him. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not in Christ. Maybe you don't know Jesus personally. I pray that you would give your life to Him. It's very simple. Simple as A, B, C, in fact. A, acknowledge that you're a sinner. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. B, believe that Jesus came to save sinners. The Bible says if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. If you believe that He came to save sinners. C, confess Him as your Lord. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's very simple. I would hate for anyone to leave here this morning that, without knowing Jesus personally. So let's stand together. Let's just commit our lives afresh and anew to Jesus this morning.